Coming up today, we'll hear about a creative way to encourage persecuted believers. We're giving the listeners an opportunity to reach out to their brothers and sisters in Christ in the country of Russia and uh, just let them know that they're praying for them and that they love them. Then Alex McFarland joins us to talk about the latest attempts to stifle Christians' influence on culture. Christian nationalism is this catch-all phrase that the left hopes will be the most potent slur of all. And Pastor Ray Rooney shares the story of his congregation's move to leave the United Methodist Church. We were a small church, and I'm just here to tell you that uh, it cost us pretty much every cent we had. It's the weekend of February 10th and 11th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. The 2024 Orange Letter Campaign, which is designed to encourage persecuted believers, is getting underway this coming week. Cedra Sarton is heading up that effort for AFA, and she's here to tell us about it. Hi, Cedra. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, remind us of what the Orange Letter Campaign is and where the focus is for next week. The Orange Letter Campaign is a campaign for writing letters to persecuted Christians all over the world. So it's our listeners' opportunity to join in and to reach out to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And why is it called Orange Letter? Well, I think a lot of our listeners probably remember a video that uh, circulated a few years back in 2015, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. um, that there were 21 Christians being beheaded on a beach and they were wearing these orange jumpsuits. And uh, everybody was wondering, like, how, what do we do? How do we reach out? You know, it doesn't seem like there's anything you can do. But uh, we were able to partner with another ministry to mm-hmm. send letters to the families that were left behind by these men that were being okay. beheaded that year. And each year, we've reached out to a different country. We've gone to um, uh, all kinds of places, even uh, North Korea, Nigeria. Wow. I mean, yeah. so it, it this is our way of reaching out. When you don't feel like you can do anything else, sending letters of encouragement means everything. Yeah. So tell me about the focus for this coming week. Where are you focusing your efforts? Um, It's a big topic in the news. I think everybody's been hearing about things happening in Russia. Okay. And that is where our letters are going uh, this time. We're giving the listeners an opportunity to reach out to their brothers and sisters in Christ in the country of Russia and uh, just let them know that they're praying for them and that they love them. What's going on in Russia in terms of religious freedom and persecution that caused you to choose that country? Well, we reached out to our friends at Global Outreach International, which Mm -hmm. is the ministry that we partner with, and they have missionaries on the ground all over the world. And um, I just asked them, um, using their knowledge of what's happening around the world, like what's a country that they feel would be very important to reach out to? And the list was long. Right. Um, but after some prayer and thought, and uh, they came back and they're like, we really think that Russia would be a good country for us to focus on this year. And um, it's a country that's definitely not completely open to religious liberty. Now, there there is a boom in Christianity. I mean, and you see that in all these countries where they're being persecuted. Right. The Christians thrive, and they continue to uh, spread the word of Jesus Christ and um, and— but I know that it f- probably feels like they're isolated mm-hmm. and that maybe the rest of the Christians of the world, ones like us who are very blessed yeah. to be able to openly practice our faith, 
Um, sometimes it might feel like we've forgotten them. And that's why we're reaching out, because we want them to know that we haven't, that we know that they're there and that we're praying for them. And so um, I have one particular story um, of a pastor, a, a Baptist pastor, actually, okay. um, who made some posts on Facebook, and he questioned the war that's going on. Mm-hmm. And he had some statements about the tactics of the Russian military. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like that. So he's getting questioned. He's been detained at one point, uh, even for just, you know, his Facebook post. And here in the United States, there are people who are not tolerant of Christianity, obviously. But for the most part, we're, we don't have to worry about police storming into our home and trying to uh, detain us for some Facebook posts like that. Yeah. And that's just one of uh, many stories. So what kind of subject matter in these letters would be appropriate? If someone wants to write a letter, what would be in that letter? It doesn't have to be super elaborate. It's super simple. You just let them know that you're there and that you're thinking about them, okay. that you're praying for them. Maybe even provide some scripture that helps you get through hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that um, say they're not good with writing letters will simply put a little scripture and I'm praying for you. And it can be as simple as that. Um and just whatever song lyrics, hymns okay, even, okay. would be a good way. I know hy- there are a lot of hymns that have helped me get through things. And yeah. so maybe take time to uh, put those in your letter. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be long. Just something to let them know that you haven't forgotten they're there. What about the responses that you've heard from people that have received these letters? Do you ever get any feedback from believers on the ground after having read yeah. one of these letters? Well, we don't always get to. Um, it. It, because some of these Christians are in places where um, they have to remain anonymous. But okay. we have gotten to hear from some of our friends, uh, one particular missionary, Mari Singh, and his family from India. He received letters one year, and he you know, expressed to us how touched he was to know that um, the Christians in the United States, and and we, I believe we have others in other countries yeah. maybe even that write letters, but that, that means a lot to them. And I know our friends at Global Outreach um, have expressed that their people on the ground really appreciate, and it means a lot to them. It makes them feel connected to the rest of the body of Christ. Yeah, okay. Now, why did you choose Global Outreach as a partner in this? Oh, man, Global Outreach is such a great partner to work with. They are a local ministry to us here in Tupelo, and they uh, have, I believe— near 300 missionaries on the ground all over the world. And one unique thing about Global is that all these missionaries, when they go out and they raise money for their mission, all of that money goes with them into their work. It doesn't, any, none of that goes to Global. Our friends at Global, they raise all of their own money. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, they're really great to partner with. And if you're looking for a ministry to possibly uh, donate to, they're, they're a great one. So you can go to globaloutreach.org um, yeah. to find them. Um, I, I would like for you to go to their website and maybe yeah. take some time and pray over the ministry and pray for the missionaries. That's good. Yeah, globaloutreach.org, and we'll put that on the show notes as well. So, okay, so next week is the Orange Letter Campaign. Mm-hmm. What do people need to do if they want to participate in this? Oh, it is. We, we try to make it as simple as possible. You go to afr.net slash olc. Uh, and you can it, there's a there'll be a form that you can follow and put in your information and write your letter and you send and we'll get that 
Mm -hmm. we'll make sure our friends at Global Outreach get it. And then they'll make sure that it gets to our uh, brothers and sisters in Russia. See, I'm showing my age now because I was thinking, okay, take out the paper and the pen, write it and put a stamp on the envelope and mail it. So it's not that kind of a letter necessarily. that kind of letter. You go to the website, you can fill it out there, and it's instantly delivered to us. to us. And we we make sure that it gets where it needs to go. Okay, so the website is afr.net slash OLC, and that will be up at the beginning of next week. Yes. Okay. Cedra Sarton, thank you so much for explaining this to us. And uh, God bless you in this effort in the Orange Letter Campaign. Yeah, thank you for having me. The manipulation of language and the redefining of words is key to the cultural revolution that we're currently experiencing in America. Maybe you've heard the term Christian nationalism. Here's an example of how that's being used. The thing that's happened with the Republican Party, which is, is there is no division between the people that are pushing religion and the people that are pushing politics. For the Republican Party, it has become one. And it's this white Christian nationalism that has completely occupies the Republican Party in America, which is out of step with the majority of America. And that led them to do what they have done. That obviously led the people on the Supreme Court, who many of them are white Christian nationalists that are sitting on the Supreme Court today. That was Matthew Dowd on MSNBC, as referenced by Fox News. Well, Dr. Alex McFarland is here with us today to help us make sense of all of this. He's no stranger to AFR as co-host of Exploring the Word. You also hear him weekends on Truth for a New Generation with Alex McFarland. Alex, welcome to The Stand Radio. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's always an honor to be with you. Now, where did this term Christian nationalism come from, and, and what's behind the use of that phrase? You know, uh, it's a great question. Um, Encyclopedia Britannica Online says, quote, the term Christian nationalism itself is relatively new. But Jeff, really, um, as with all journalists who use this uh, epithet, uh, the etymology and accurate application of the term are really kind of unclear. Mm -hmm. It seems like it began to just appear in the common vernacular shortly after the word deplorable eight mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, um, the way that people on the left and most journalists use the term Christian nationalism, it's kind of like a general use slur by bloggers, journalists, pundits, who um, maybe the word deplorable was a little too harsh. and. Uh, just like the word anti-Semitism was really developed by the Nazis because Jew-hating, I mean, people recoiled from that term that Hitler used, Jew-hating, so they used the, the softer term anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic. Yeah. I truly believe that Christian nationalism is a more sanitized, slightly more palatable rendering of the word deplorable. It's a unique phrase. What do you think uh, the intent is to use that phrase against Christians? Well, the the intent by the left to try to uh, frighten people, Christian nationalism, you know, what are these people about? Are they trying to uh, initiate some theocracy where shoplifters will be, you know, taken out for a public stoning or something like that? The, the way that people use this, they want it to marginalize and really demonize conservatives, 
But let, let's break the, the term down. Uh, uh, George Barna says 130 million adult Americans are Christian. Well, that's a huge part of the population to engage in some sort of othering. Okay. Uh, so I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a believer, and I care about the future of America. I mean, does that make me a bad guy? Well, uh, in the minds of some of the woke left, apparently so. You mentioned the term othering. That's a tactic, isn't it, by Marxism? Does the Marxist philosophy use that tactic? Well, uh, Marxists used that tactic, but also in 1941, the Nazis used that tactic by forcing Jewish people to wear a Star of David on mm-hmm. their their sleeve. Uh, and, and this othering, it, it really does go back to really, you know, Reinhard Heydrich, who worked for Hitler, who mandated the Jewish badge, and this planned labeling publicly targeted for elimination those whom the Nazis found as undesirables. And I truly believe that Christian nationalism is this catch-all phrase that the left hopes will be the most potent slur of all to uh, silence and cower into submission those they think are undesirable, which are people that that believe in God and love this country. Alex, you've been a pastor and, and you preach on a regular basis. How do you handle issues that have political implications but also involve biblical issues? Well, I believe that every pastor should preach on political issues and what uh, great sociologists and trend watchers like George Barna tell us that, you know, 80% of our congregants want us to do that. Now, only about 8 or 9% of ordained ministers will address moral, social, political issues from the pulpit, but 8 out of 10 of their parishioners wish they would. Now, now what's so sad is uh, part of the slide that our nation has had, the moral and spiritual and social, you know, erosion, I mean, we could blame the left, and, and part of the blame does lie on their doorstep, and we could blame, you know, liberal pundits. But in the last two election cycles, I think about people like Tim Keller, mm-hmm. I think of, about people like John Piper, that um, have really urged ministers not to address moral, social, political issues. Now, uh, on the Christian front, I mean, from Westminster, there was Michael Horton from Grove City, there was Warren Throckmorton that have just derided the idea. And th- these men are Christian scholars, I, I don't dispute that. But they, they basically say, look, um, our calling is to preach the gospel, let mm-hmm. America go to hell. Mm. And, you know, one of the smartest mortals that ever lived, Augustine, he lived 354 to 430. Augustine basically said, until we're in the city of God, we have an obligation to the city of man. And so I, as a pastor and speaker and church staff member, yes, we are to pray, stay informed, influence others, and use our platform to advocate for Christian involvement in the public square. Pastors, preach on government and politics. Uh, Give your people what thus saith the Lord. We're visiting today with Dr. Alex McFarland. Alex, you travel extensively and uh, you teach and preach often. What's coming up in the weeks ahead? 
Oh, well, thanks very much. We've got a lot going on, and um, two websites, if I could give. One is just uh, my name, alexmcfarland.com. The other are our summer camps, equipretreat.org. For 25 years, Jeff, we've done youth camps, middle school, high schoolers. This year we're in Montana, New Jersey, Georgia, uh, all over the country. Seven youth camps I'll be doing this summer. Very, very, very affordable. And of course, job one is to tell young people about Christ and how to be saved. But also, we talk to kids about uh, saving America. And whether you go into ministry, business, the laboratory, judiciary, law, politics, education, whatever, um, young people, and I will say this, and I give God the glory, they soak up truth like a, a thirsty person. Uh, would desire water on a hot summer day. And so be encouraged. I'm on the road. We've got events in Indiana, Texas, um, Missouri, all over the country. But um, the thing that I would solicit prayer for most urgently would be the 1,200 teenagers we'll be with all summer long in our seven camps. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a privilege to have you on the program. God bless you, my friend. What is it that binds Christians together in a denominational sense? And what happens when that bond is stretched to the breaking point? Well, Christians in America got a good look at that at the end of last December when nearly one out of every four congregations in the United Methodist Church left the denomination. Dr. Ray Rooney is digital media editor for The Stand and was a United Methodist Church pastor for 37 years. He's here to give us some explanation of what happened. Hello, Ray. Hi, how are you doing, Jeff? One count brought the total to 7,659 churches that left. Could you give us a sense of the magnitude of that number? Yeah, it's between 20 and 25 percent, about almost a fourth. You, you said it a minute ago, about one in four. It's it's almost a fourth of uh, the denomination that has left. It's It's pretty significant. And here's the thing. That's just the number of those who went through the process and left. That's nowhere near the number of the churches that want to leave really? but can't. So there is a schism, as the title of the article is in this month's The Stand magazine, um, obviously with the churches that left, but also there was a wide gap between the leadership of the denomination and the delegates to the general conference and the average person in the pew. Talk about that a little bit, because this issue of homosexuality has come up over and over. Did the leadership actually believe that they could persuade the people in the pews that this was a good idea to go down this road? I don't think they thought that they could convince uh, the grassroots uh, member uh, membership of the United Methodist Church that uh, that accepting the practice, let's make that okay. clear, the okay. practice of homosexuality would be normative in, in the church. What I think happened, in, and this is kind of what happens, um, it's not just particular to the United Methodist Church, um, it, it's what happens in religious leadership in general is I think that the leadership convinced itself that they were put in place by God to do this okay. and uh, and it was going to happen because it was God's will no matter what the people said. They, it was just a level of, of arrogance that at least I received as a, as a United Methodist uh, practitioner and then yeah. as a pastor was it, it doesn't really matter what you think, Ray. 
they made themselves out to be heroes, okay. and they actually did lean on the civil rights movement that they they were going to they were the new civil rights heroes. So we're going to do this whether you like it or not. So you were the bad guy. Yes. Oh yes. Bad guy, bigot. Really, I mean really? that's that's the word. You you, you know, oh. uncouth bigot. You served, as I mentioned, as a United Methodist Church pastor for 37 years. What struggles did your church go through when you finally left the denomination, and what was the breaking point for you? You know, we were a small Methodist, United Methodist congregation. Most of us in that church had been United Methodist for the better part of our lives, mm-hmm. all right? So so it, there was a struggle. The first struggle was um, – how do I put this? Um I don't want to say that I caused this, <laughs> all right. But I remember sitting down at the table one day for a, uh, uh, you know, prior to a Bible study, and just saying to the people that were gathered around, um, I don't know how much longer I can, in good faith, be a United Methodist pastor. Wow. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know that it's going to be much longer. Mm-hmm. And and I just want. I just. I, this wasn't a threat. This wasn't a, an appeal to let's do something. Mm-hmm. It was just a statement of fact. I wanted my little church to know I, I can't do this much longer as a United Methodist pastor. And so there was some struggle at first about the, the longevity that everybody uh, – you we really want to do? <laughs> I mean because there yeah. were others that were saying right that day that, yeah, well, we should all just go. Not everyone – but eventually it came to be everyone. But uh, it was just – it was a struggle of do we leave what we believe God had called us into. I mean that's that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, you better believe in whatever local church you're in that, that God has called you into that situation. And my communication to the congregation was I'm feeling a call outward. Okay. And and so it wasn't just a um, a griping and a complaining, and I don't like this. I, I just I felt like I can't keep going simply because I don't feel God's call on me to be here anymore. Mm-hmm. And the people sensed that same thing for themselves. They did, yeah. and it took it took a couple of months. We had many meetings, and uh, sure. uh, to just say, what do y'all think? What do you what do you? And in the background, the conference, uh, the general conference, was doing this, that, and the other, and, the, and so it, it it was it was a struggle. And then, when the decision was made, uh, it was a tremendous financial burden. We were a small church, and I'm just here to tell you that uh, it cost us pretty much. Every cent we had. All right. For people who are not familiar with the United Methodist denomination, can you tell us why it is so hard for a church to simply just leave and begin somewhere else? The trust clause. The there trust was, clause. Yeah. When when it became the United Methodist Church back in 1968, there was a trust clause inserted, which basically said that even though um, – a couple of denominations combined, right? Evangelical, United Brethren, Methodist, Episcopal, and so forth. And the claim was made that even though you built your church and that's on land that you bought, as a denomination, the, the conference or the denomination is going to hold the property in trust. So in other words, basically saying it's ours from a legal perspective. And so they wanted you to pay. Now, this there was this there went through several iterations of when the time came to leave, how much to pay, and and so forth. But um, ultimately, that's the way it used to be. You okay. were going to pay for the property a certain amount. In 2019, the general conference uh, uh, they added a, a 2530, 2553, I think is the number. Mm-hmm. And the way to get out then 
uh, if you wanted to, you had to pay two years of complete full apportionments. That's the askings from, and then a, uh, a percentage of a, of a pension liability. And for a lot of churches, they just don't have that money. Sure, um, I mean that's a, that's a lot of money. Um, and and like I said, for uh, I'm not going into it and all, but our yeah. church got destroyed by a tornado in in March of last year, so we didn't have a building, and and um, the bank account had to be basically emptied to get out. Wow, <laughs> I mean with zero, a, a step of faith for sure. Mm. What advice would you give to United Methodist Church congregations that would like to leave but feel stuck in the denomination? Well, I, as a as I put in the article, there's no easy way here. There's okay. there's there's not going there's no easy way to uh, to do this. If you don't have the money but you want to go, you're either going to have to find it, raise money, have the whatever it takes to to find it. But I'm I'm saying that though, and I realize that door's already closed. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. that 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 door closed December 31st. All right. So now the way to do it is it's a different way. Um, and I remember at the last annual conference that I uh, went to um, back last year, um, the whole end of the conference was one uh, either lay delegate or preacher getting up after another asking the bishop how, how to get out after the deadline. Right. And, and there was a way that was led forth. And so and, – and it shouldn't be hard. I mean it's, it's kind of like if, if you don't want to be here, you know, you, you, don't, you shouldn't have to be here. Um, at the 2019 general conference that was supposed to have been set up such that all churches that wanted to leave could without penalty or payment but that then they inserted 2553 i think and mm-hmm. and then it became well you're going to have to pay something um it, listen if you feel as a church that I'm, I'm thinking as a church, not an individual in the church, that you want out but you can't get out, then you're just going to have to ask God either for help in raising uh, – in help in, in guidance through the system as it stands or you just leave. You find some property, you start over is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, and and let, they let them mm-hmm. have the building. Well, I'll say this. It makes a great testimony of faith when you are standing on biblical principles. And it's not an emotional thing. But you were standing on principle and leaving, and I think that that is a great testimony. And so, it's not what your aim is. I yeah, hey, I, yeah. I want to leave. Yeah. No, we tried for by saying we. I'm saying evangelical Christians in the United Methodist Church tried for 40 years mm-hmm. uh, to hold the line, and it just became very clear, especially after uh, 2019, that uh, the leadership isn't gonna. It's, it kept trying to go different ways, and, and it just became apparent it's, it can't be reformed. Not now. Well, you can read the article in this month's The Stand magazine featuring Dr. Ray Rooney called Schism. We encourage you to read that and, uh, and pray for the future of these believers that are in this nomination. Pray for the churches that have broken away, that uh, God would be glorified as, as they are light and salt where the Lord plants them. Ray, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Next week on The Stand Radio, we'll follow up on the latest federal push for control over internet service providers. Abraham Hamilton III will be with us in the studio for a legal perspective. Then we'll bring in Jason Jimenez for insight into what's going on with Christian deconstruction and the subtle deception behind progressive Christianity. If you've missed a part of today's episode, you can get the podcast and show notes at AFR.net. The Stand Radio is a companion to The Stand magazine. 
Get your free six-month subscription and read the online articles at afa.net slash the stand. For questions or comments, email us at thestand at afa.net. I'm Jeff Shambly. Join us again next time here on The Stand Radio.